We're going to continue looking at the book of Romans. We've been studying this book, and we're uh, in the third chapter today. And the book of Romans answers big questions that everybody has, whether you're a Christian or not. You could be a, a complete unbeliever, an atheist. But when you come to the book of Romans and you start reading through some of the things that Paul is saying, he's explaining why, he, he starts out telling us why the world is the way it is. We often wonder, if there's a God, why did he make the world like this? I mean, look at the mess it's in. Uh, we have war in Europe again, and we've got people that are dying un unfairly, it seems, just, you know, innocent people. And we, we struggle to make sense of the world. And why, not only is the world this way, why are people the way they are? Why do we struggle with our individual uh, issues that everyone has and has had since the beginning of time? And uh, how do we bring people out there into here? How do we do that? Because people that come into the church often think the church is something that it's not. They think it's a place where people are holy and good. Apart from me, I don't know anybody else that's like that. But Yeah, <laughs> amen. <laughs> Folks, you know, if we're going to understand what real Christianity is about, you've got to understand what Paul is talking about here. Why the world is the way. Why people are the way they are. And why, how, are we, how are we going to even be anything other than uh, uh, just another little clique, another little group? How do we reach our world with some good news? Good news about how you can live in peace and joy even when the world is, is out of control around us. And when the vagaries of life come into our life, knowing that someone is there that loves us and cares for us. So uh, that's what we're looking at. I have in your, in your bulletin, we're going to read the passage in a moment, but I just want you to know I did a lot of work uh, in, in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew. I really bored down into it, and I translated myself the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3. Verse 20, their remark, the translation, nobody's ever translated it like this. It's so good. So uh, the, the, he's writing in these first eight verses to uh, a, a cynical bunch of religious people, very cynical, very self-righteous. They're propped up. They think they're better. They're holier than thou. And here's what he says to them, or, or what, they, what they say back to the Apostle Paul. See, he's just criticized the daylights out of them for being religious you know, holier-than-thou people thinking they're better than other people. So now they're coming back at him, and they say, so what's the use of being a good, upstanding, self-righteous, moral, church-going Jew or Christian if you're just going to lump us in with all the tattooed riffraff? And Paul answers, well, you've been given the Scriptures, the oracles and revelation of God's Word, so what's the use of the Scriptures? We gave up believing Scriptures long ago. It was useless. Paul says, oh really? Well that just means you good, upstanding, self-righteous, moral, church-going Jews and Christians are knuckleheads. God remains faithful and true to His Word and you being knuckleheads just proves how faithful and true He is. So, if being a knucklehead serves his good purpose, then it's not fair for him to judge us. Now that's said in a whiny voice. We're helping him out. 
We're showing people just how wonderful, faithful, and true He is. Hey, that means the more we sin, the better it is. Woohoo! And Paul answers, What? You knuckleheads really do deserve to burn. That's supposed to be funny. Okay. Uh, Paul is a rabbi, and rabbis would ask questions and answer them. They knew the answers and before they even asked the questions. And they, they did this as teachers do today. If you're a school teacher, you know what I'm talking about. You ask your students questions, hopefully that you know the answer to, to open their presuppositions about uh, their, their world around them, whether it's math, you know, what's two plus two, that opens your presuppositions about lots of things, about math, about science, about, uh, you know, can I pay my bills this month, whatever the case may be. Questions are designed to open us up so that we can learn. And you can see Paul is asking questions He's pointing out the vagaries of our human life. He's saying, you want to know why the world is like it is? You caused the world to be this way. God didn't invent whips and scourges and crosses and arms of war and hatred and violence and, and looking down at people, they're not as good as me. God didn't create that, folks. We did that all on our own, freely and gladly. And if anything, the human history has shown us that human beings have an incredible capacity to do evil. You don't see it anywhere else in nature. A lion cannot commit murder. Even if he kills a human being, it's not murder. They're doing what God created them to do. The only thing that's out of order in this creation are human beings. And we don't want to admit it, and that's what Paul has been going at for three chapters now. And thankfully, he's going to finish with these few verses here, and then we're going to hear some good news. He had to tell us the bad news before the good news is going to make any difference. And if you've struggled in your life, whatever stage of life you are, if you've struggled, there's answers right here. Just read what he says. See what he's telling us. So now we're going to read... Uh, after those fun verses, which were scholarly, uh, we're going to go read the rest of the chapter. So starting at verse 9, hear the word of God. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to choose and commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses, to show that the entire world is guilty before God, for no one can ever 
be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. This is the word of the Lord. So, in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul uh, gives this uh, unbelievable, in just a few verses, this incredible description of why humanity is the way it is. Why is it struggling? And the immeasurable burden that human beings are under. Sometimes we don't even know why the world is like this. I don't know if you're like me. I've asked questions all my life. Now I know all the answers. I'm still asking questions. You should wonder why the world is so. You should wonder because it it is amazing the capacity. People, we can go to outer space, land on Mars, land on the moon, and we have no trouble killing each other. None. It seems to be a blindness in us that we cannot fathom. And even when we want to do good, even when there's there's strong impulses in our hearts to do good, Paul is going to say in just a couple of chapters, We don't have the capacity to do it. We try, but it just doesn't come out right. It comes out wrong. And so he has said that there is an irreversible burden on the human race because we have rebelled knowingly and willfully against Almighty God. Going back to the beginning of creation, whatever you want to believe the beginning of creation was like, it was not like it is now. We have not evolved. If anything, we have devolved. And so we're looking at something that is going to require every human being to take a strong inner look, an honest look at themselves, quit pointing the finger out there at everybody else, look at themselves and say, why? I understand. Look at all this. Why? If I was in the right place with the right amount of money and power, I might do just exactly what Vladimir Putin is doing. Or anybody else. Pick your, pick your person that you think is worse than you. There is no way that we can get away from what Paul is saying. And what he's appealing to, he's appealing to you to think a little deeper than we normally would. We don't want to. We want to push it away, push it off on somebody else. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. What have you done? And the woman says, the man gave me, the woman gave me the fruit. The man said, you gave me the woman. The serpent doesn't say anything because he comes under a curse. So there's all this blame shifting and pointing of fingers. And God is sitting there going, what? You really do deserve to burn. But instead, he doesn't. He clothes them instead. We deserve to burn, folks. But he doesn't do that. God is gracious and loving, and the Apostle Paul is going to hammer this home for the next 15 chapters of glorious grace and good news to those of us who are suffering. And people push it back. They Look, not everybody will accept it, but I'm appealing to you. Some of you have been in church all your lives and you are still struggling. If you're like me, you still struggle looking out there and saying, gosh, I, you know, people are really bad. I'm better than them. I know I'm better than them. I, I would never, here's what we say, I would never do that, really. Do you? You don't even know yourself. I would do anything and everything if I had the right amount of power and the right amount of money and, and there was no uh, penalty attached. Nobody to judge me. Nobody to call into question. What would we do, really? And are we willing to look at that and say, you know, there's, 
There's nothing in me. Well, that's what he does in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he's not finished. He's just indicted the whole human race in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he goes after religious people, church people, us. And he says, you think you're better than them? You're not. You're just like that. It's just the difference is we are more clever at hiding our sin. We sing beautiful songs like this that we sang this morning that are profound. And yet, there's still stuff going on in our hearts, yeah? That are not good. And God is calling us out. He's shining a light. Why? Because He wants to make you feel guilty. Folks, we don't need anybody to help us feel guilty. I don't care whether you're a Christian or not. Everybody's struggling with shame and guilt. Yes? Everybody. doesn't matter who you are. And we do unbelievable things to rid ourselves of shame and guilt, and it just will not go away. And here he's telling us religion isn't going to do it. Just behaving good, that's not enough. You cannot behave your way out of death. It's impossible. And now in chapter 3, what Paul does is just the first three chapters, and it's been hard, folks. I know I've had to work through this with you. And I know you've had a hard time, some of you listening to this, but Paul is like a doctor. He's cutting away a cancer and exposing the, the, the filth. You just heard his description from the Old Testament of this foul stench that is coming out of us. And he says, we've got to excise it. We've got to cut it out somehow. How? How are we going to do that? He undermines in these few verses we read the last... what. I hope, are the last shreds of any idea that we're going to somehow, whatever God is, he, she, it, them, whatever your concept of God is, how are you going to make yourself right with that God? How are you going to do it? What are you going to have to do? And therein lies the problem. So, let's look at this um, and we're going to look at, at three things like we normally do just to help us Stay on track. The first thing is, what does Paul mean when he says, under sin? He said, everyone, we conclude the Jews are no better than the Gentiles. No, not at all. We've shown that all people, all people without exception, every human being, Jews or Gentiles, are under sin. My brother David, who's a, 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 a theologian like me we're want to be theologians but my brother David would always say when we were studying theology he'd say theology is all about vocabulary it's about words it's about how you understand words now in postmodernism the words don't mean anything which is ironic because the postmodern will tell you oh those words don't mean anything well that's good to know then your words don't mean anything either do they postmodern See, the, the ridiculousness that we uh, embrace sometimes is laughable. No, it's all about vocabulary. It's about what is meant. And we know, we even know this, folks. We know that we have meaning. Our lives have meaning. We have worth. We pamper ourselves. We feed ourselves. We get up in the morning and actually we'll take a shower. We do things to take care because we know there's something worthwhile in us. If you have a pet, I have three crazy dogs, perros locos. They're crazy. 
And I love them. I can't help myself. They get on my bed. They put hair everywhere. They, you can't help it. You love them. Why? Because they're lovable? No, because they're yours. And you see a value and a dignity even in an animal. What about, how do you think God is looking at you? He has poured immeasurable, infinite almost, worth and value into human beings. And then we go off the reservation, shake our fist at Him and say no. And He doesn't even blink. He just keeps coming in closer. Not going further away. He comes in close. What does it mean to be under sin? Well, the New Living Translation in what we read, they they actually translate it right. It doesn't say under the power of sin in Greek. It just says under sin. But the NLT uh, translators added the word power because that's the sense of the phrase. And it's very, very helpful. We are under sin in the sense that we are under the judgment of sin. We're under the weight or the burden. I don't know. I've never met anybody. I'm 67 years old. I have yet to meet anyone who does not struggle with shame and guilt. We try to get rid of it, but it just won't go away. We're like Lady Macbeth. Oh, damned it spot. And she's trying to wash it out. I, you know, I love Shakespeare. And it just, you think about her. She's murdered the, the previous king and trying to put her husband into power. And She's done these horrible things, but she can't get rid of that damn spot. Shakespeare said that, not your pastor. Okay, so. We are under it. Under the weight of it, the judgment of it, the power, the burden of it. And a lot of people don't even know. They they just know something's wrong, and there it is. Here's what uh, Douglas Moo, he's a great New Testament theologian, he said this, to be under sin means not only to be a sinner, it means to be helpless, a helpless slave under its power. You see, it's something is wrong. We can't seem to fix it. We go to extremes to try to fix it with everything, money and sex and church-going Religious stuff, you name it, we have tried it. Drugs and alcohol and whatever. Or being a really good person. I know how I'll control God. I'll be really good, then I can put Him in. He can be in debt to me because I'm such a good person. Dear Lord, have mercy on us. How crazy. But that's the delusion that Paul talked about in chapter 1. This delusion that comes in and we just can't figure it out. And here, folks, this is truth. God is saying, yeah, I'll help you figure it out. You're not going to figure it all out, but I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll even do some stuff for you that you can't do for yourself. That's where the book of Romans starts to just hit turbo. Off it goes. What God can do for us that we could never do for ourselves. We're under it. And this is where we get the doctrine, by the way, of what we call total depravity. Now, that's an old word, depravity. It's very, we don't like that word now. Depraved means other things, and it did when, the, uh, when these old theologians were, were writing it. But total depravity does not mean that you're as bad as you can be. What it means is that every part of us is tainted to some degree with sin. Total depravity means that sin affects to some degree 
every dimension of our life. There's no little island of our lives that is untouched. Now, it's true. Some people are worse than other people. And we know that just by looking around us. And some people are very, very good people. But even the good that we do, even the very best people, have this thing, this taint, this little drop of sin in every part of their life and existence. If any of you have read uh, any of Mother Teresa's writings, you'll know that this is a woman who, by all accounts, she literally was a saint. She gave her life away for the poor in Calcutta, on the streets of Calcutta. And she struggled mightily with guilt and shame because the church told her she was no good. No, the church lauded her as a saint. We don't need anybody to tell us. We already know we're struggling with something. And the more we try, as Paul said in chapter 1, we try to suppress the truth and replace it with a lie, the more strain it puts on our muscles and our body and our psyche. We're trying to hold down the truth and we're trying to fill it with something else, a lie. And that creates a strong delusion in human beings that we cannot get over. And then, you got a pastor like me, I've got to come and tell you the bad news. But make no mistake, this bad news is absolutely chock full of good news. You just got to be willing to hear it and listen. Total depravity means sin affects every dimension. Here's what R.C. Sproul says. R.C. was one of my professors at seminary and a brilliant theologian. Total depravity does not mean, this is very helpful, folks. Total depravity does not mean utter depravity. It doesn't mean that you're just as bad as you possibly could be. Everybody can be worse than they are and everybody can be better. Yes, we can. We can you, know, you can move along that continuum. But as, wherever you go along that continuum, whether it's Mother Teresa on the one hand or Adolf Hitler on the other hand, doesn't matter. There's always room for improvement and there's always room to be worse. So it's just a matter of degree. Saying some total depravity just simply means it's affecting everything. Utter depravity would mean that we'd all be in the zombie apocalypse. We'd all be zombies. And this is what he talk, was talking about in, in chapter 1. That humanity had fallen to such a degree of utter depravity that God sent the flood and you know all that. That's a whole nother, whole nother topic. So total just means it's everywhere. And it's in everything. And folks, you know, have you been to the doctor lately? I go all the time because of my health issues. And, you know, they take my blood and, you know, I hold my breath because I don't know what they're going to say. In fact, I've been thinking about not going anymore. Then I won't have anything. Nobody can tell me the bad news. Folks, we've got to wake up. Total depravity does not mean utter depravity. Utter depravity would mean that every human being is as wicked as it is possible for them to be. This is R.C. And we know that this is not the case. We know it's not the case. Everybody's not as bad as they could be. As much as we sin, we can always contemplate sinning more often or more grievously than we presently do. So 
total depravity is a member vocabulary. Theology is all about vocabulary. So when you read total depravity, don't think, oh my God, these people in church are saying we're the worst people. No, no, no. That's not what it is. We're not utterly depraved, but every part of us is struggling with sin. It is present. We are under its power. And we are under its penalty. Penalty, judgment, power, its influence to control us. And its presence, you cannot go anywhere on this earth. If any of you have been to the beach in Mexico or Hawaii, one of these beautiful places, sin is there. You can't get away. It's there. Our mind, our heart, our actions, our speech, our impulses, this is what he does in 10 through 18. Look at these verses. All means all. No one means no one. These are universal negatives, universal positives. All means all without exception. No one means no one. Not one. And look at these verses in 10. He says, the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. Our hearts and our minds, what we call the noetic effect of sin, we, 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 even our thinking is distorted and we know it is. Our hearts, our minds, we're, we want wisdom, but we just can't seem to find it. Who is wise? Who is the sage? And we start looking for people with wise and, and gravitating to him because we know we're to be reft of wisdom. No one does good, not a single one. Our actions are influenced by these impulses that are in the way we think, the way we want things. Our speech, our talk is foul, stench from an open ground, tongues filled with lies, snake venom, wow. What Paul has done, he's gone back into the Old Testament and he's gathered all these passages of, of really extreme judgment that God, his Old Testament prophets, have made against the human race at various times for various reasons. All good reasons too. If you knew what was going on back in the Old Testament, you, you would think you were living in Disneyland right now. Our world is bad, but you should have, you should have seen what it was like back then. Unbelievable. So here you are with a description. Our entire life, they rush to commit murder. Destruction, misery always follow them. We don't know where to find peace. Where are you going to find peace? Nobody fears God at all. Every, every part of us, totally, our total being, our total world, under this incredible burden. So, look, we're all under sin. Whether you believe it or not, that doesn't really matter. You're under it and you know it. Then he talks about all. He's saying there's no exceptions out there. You see, we can't go live on a desert island or up in the mountains in a cabin and just get away from it. It goes with you wherever you go. So it's not like it's going to be left behind somewhere that you can escape from it. So it's going to be there. And Paul says this, all, but then he says, now, can we do something about it? And that's the last thing we'll talk about. May I? 
can I? You remember in school, I don't know if they still do this in school. Do you all remember? May I, can I, how to tell the difference, right? So you raise your hand in class. RC uses this. I borrowed from him. Hey, you raise your hand in class. You're in second grade. Can I go to the bathroom? And the teacher would say back to you what? Yeah, I don't know. Can you? And then they would correct you by saying what? Yes, you may. Can is a word that is talking about ability. May is working uh, towards the idea of permission. Look at 19 and 20. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it is given. He's talking about the Old Testament law, and he's talking about the Jewish people and anyone else that had heard the, the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and the other parts of the law. Its purpose was to keep people from having excuses. Just what we've been talking about. We are tr- always trying to excuse ourselves. To show the entire world is guilty before God. Now he's going to conclude. Listen to this. No one for no one can ever be made right by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. You see, the law is out there. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor the Lord your God. Make no idols. Uh, Honor your parents. So remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and so forth. Ten of them. And then Jesus comes along and he says, you know, if you want to fulfill those ten, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then one of his apostles, John, comes along and says, you can't even love your neighbor. You can't even love God if you're not loving your neighbor. So he just narrows it down until it's a laser beam that goes into the heart of mankind and will do its surgery. It will work. Do I love God? No, not enough. May I love God? All you want. You have permission. In fact, the law, the Old Testament law says, Obey this law and you will live. Obey it and live. And we look at it and we go, Wow, that's not fair. I mean, really? Isn't there another way? I know I made. Why are we looking for another way? Because we can't. We know we can't. We know we won't. We know we don't even want to, really, because it's going to restrict us, perhaps, in some ways. I would argue that it will free you, not restrict you. You come to God, He's going to break the chains of sin and slavery and set you free, and you're going to be singing hallelujah. Stay with your other master, with your other king, with your other God, the God of slavery and idolatry and everything else, and He will grind you to dirt. That's what the Scripture tells us. Serve Him and you will be ground to dirt. And God comes and says, Serve me and I'll set you free. Fear me, you never have to fear anything else. Trust me and nothing else will be able to subvert your your life and your goodness. Nothing else can betray you. Imagine this. Is that hard to believe you? Yes, it is. So what do we do? 
the law is like a mirror. You know, John Calvin and Luther and these other guys, they said that the the law had uses. The first use of the law, those of you that are theologians, uh, the first use of the law is to mirror, to reflect back to us God's perfect righteousness and our failure. That's what it does. It drives us to a point where we say, man, I need help. I've tried everything. I've piled up a bunch of money in my savings account. I'm driving a nice car. I have a good-looking wife. Is she here? Yes. She's back there. I have a beautiful wife. Somebody told us in Florida, they said, oh, you have a trophy wife. I said, well, that's not what my parents told me. They said that she had a trophy husband. So, you know, you think about these. I mean, we try everything, folks. We are we're ingenious about our, the ways we try stuff. The second use of the law, the reformers said, was to restrain evil in, generally, in generality. In other words, God gave us the law, and if you read it honestly, you read the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, you say, you know, if everybody lived according to this, hey, we wouldn't need an army. We could actually feed the poor and take care of people that do, have real needs and build hospitals and stuff like this. Who's doing it? Nobody. But we know that it would work. So he gives us the law. And in some sense, the law is what we call common grace. It, it covers the earth and it restrains. It puts at least some guardrails around. Okay? The third use of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. In other words, for His people, it shows us what will please. How can I please Him? Well, I please Him by not creating idols, you know, like money or looks or, you know, which go away or any number of other things. I don't do that. I honor Him. I do what I can to to do what is right. And I trust Him and I repent a lot because I'm always breaking the law. But he loves repentance. I used to ask my students, what does God love more, obedience or repentance? And they would always say what? Obedience. But he loves repentance too. In fact, he loves repentance just as much as obedience. When you obey him, he loves that. When you don't obey and you mess up and you come back to him and say, God, I messed up. And he said, come here, let me give you a hug. You're going to be all right. And, And gives you that hug. He loves that too. So what are we going to say about can and will or may or any of that? Well, let me finish with this. Paul is doing something that I, I think is brilliant. He's taking a stake and he's driving it into the heart of the vampire of self-righteousness, self-protection. You know, this, this thing that's in there, this old person that's in there that's given us to grief... Paul is taking the stake, putting it in there, and he's driving it in to kill that thing, at least in our mind, in our rational thing. He's wanting to destroy that so that he can build back something else. So he uses these hyperbolic terms, all, no one, never, no way, no can. You may, but you can't. And you're just thinking, oh God, Christianity, this is the worst religion. The worst. Until somebody like Paul says the word but. May you? Yes. Can you? No. 
but. But now, God has shown us a way. This is verse 21. We didn't read it. Here's where the line comes, folks. Here's where He draws the division. If we could have done it all on one Sunday, it would have been really nice to go through all three chapters. Impossible. But if you've been here each week, you, you know that now here comes the good news. Verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glorious standards that God set. Yet, God in His grace makes us right in His sight. How? He did this through Christ Jesus. By His glorious Grace, by freely giving us that grace. He freed us from, look at this, the penalty of sin. He's going to go on, he's going to say, not only are you free from the penalty, but you're free from the power of sin too. That's going to come in chapter 6 and 7 and 8 primarily. He's going to say you're free from the power of sin, you're free from its penalty, and someday we're going to be freed from the presence of sin, but not right now. Right now, we're still, you know, killing each other in Ukraine and Russia and all that. And everywhere else that we do these things. But He did this through Jesus Christ. He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God has presented Him a sacrifice for sin. The word sacrifice in Greek is, uh, uh, or in in the Old English, is propitiation. You know, it's a hard word maybe to get your head around. Propitiation means that God put His Son forward as the one who not only can, but may. Jesus had the ability and the will to do it. He had the ability and the will to go to the cross, to go into the Garden of Gethsemane and look down in the pit of hell in the fire burning and say, my will is not my own. I will do what you want. May I? May I please? I will do what my Father asks because I love these people. And I don't want them to suffer the penalty of sin, so I will take it. And I don't want them to be under the power of sin. I'll break their chains and set them free. And I will go into the grave so that in eternity they will be free from the penalty and power and presence finally of sin. Finally. We don't believe in pie in the sky, folks. We believe in a grave. A grave, that's where he went. May I? Can I? Yes, I can. Yes, I may too. I will do all things. This is all Christianity is, folks, in a nutshell. It's Jesus coming into a wrecked world and saving people who will put their trust in him. It's just that easy. 
and lay down all the other junk, put it aside and say, you know what, I got to get a, I got to find this, I got to find it. I don't want to spend another day in chains. And he will free you and then begins this marvelous journey that the Apostle Paul talks about for the rest of Romans. Is it easy? No. G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Let Jesus Christ come into your heart. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. All of us. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy that endures forever. We pray, Father, that You would please open our hearts Even those of us that are in church, we make our living as church. And yet, the the strength and the power that comes back and makes us feel like we are impotent, that we cannot conquer it. Please help us to see through that lie. Open our hearts to Jesus, the righteous King, the one who could and the one who did. Thank you, and have mercy on us.